Hello. Welcome to the fifth chapter readings podcast. Chapter readings are a series of events celebrating the beauty and significance of the written words spoken aloud. Each month, an artist or group of artists design a literature-inspired reading created from a single theme or idea at the Chapter Art Centre in Cardiff. The project is developed and curated by Be Aware Productions as part of Chapter's Associate Artist Programme Paylot. I am Rebecca Smith-Williams, part of the theatre company Triangle, and have curated this series of readings. Triangle are also associate artists on Chapter's Paylot Programme. So, the title of this chapter readings is Creature. The theme was chosen after Triangle's exploration into the world of a rather unusual protagonist in our latest play, Margaret and the Tapeworm, and it is a celebration of and in fascination with the many layers of life that coexist with us humans. I have chosen a brilliant handful of writers to take us on this journey with pieces that have touched me over the years in their various ways. The terror that Orwell struck into my heart with 1984, the quiet awe that D.H. Lawrence gives with his encounter with a snake. We have a short story by Patricia Highsmith, who herself was rather captivated by snails and reportedly carried them to parties in her handbag. A striking and visceral piece from a collection of Welsh stories by Shaky Roberts about a mother and her young baby she feels is like a leech. Seamus Heaney showing us how we tread the line between human and creature and many more. So here is a podcast of literature and poetry readings inspired by the creatures of planet Earth. From rat to snail to snake to leech, come with us into the beautiful, horrific and sensual world of the undergrowth with some of the world's greatest writers. The event was recorded on the 9th of October 2018 at the Chapter Arts Centre in Cardiff. I do hope you're all sitting comfortably. When Mr. Peter Noppert began to make a hobby of snail watching, he had no idea that his handful of specimens would become hundreds in no time. Only Two months after the original snails were carried up to the Noppet study, some 30 glass tanks and bowls, all teeming with snails, lined the walls, rested on the desk and windowsills, and were beginning even to cover the floor. Mrs Noppet disapproved strongly and would no longer enter the room. It smelled, she said, And besides, she had once stepped on a snail by accident, a horrible sensation she would never forget. But the more his wife and friends deplored his unusual and vaguely repellent pastime, (laughs) the more pleasure Mr Noppert seemed to find in it. I never cared for nature before in my life, Mr Noppert often remarked. He was a partner in a brokerage firm, a man who had devoted all his life to the science of finance. 
but snails have opened my eyes to the beauty of the animal world. If his friends commented that snails were not really animals and their slimy habitats hardly the best example of the beauty of nature, Mr. Noppert would tell them, with a superior smile, that they simply didn't know all that he knew about snails. And it was true. Mr. Noppert had witnessed an exhibition that was not described, certainly not adequately described, in any encyclopedia or zoology book that he had been able to find. Mr. Noppert had wandered into the kitchen one evening for a bite of something before dinner and had happened to notice that a couple of snails in the china bowl on the draining board were behaving very oddly. Standing more or less on their tails, they were weaving before each other for all the world like a pair of snakes hypnotised by a flute player. A moment later, their faces came together in a kiss of voluptuous intensity. Mr Noppet bent closer and studied them from all angles. Something else was happening. A protuberance like an ear, was appearing on the right side of the head of both snails. His instinct told him that he was watching a sexual activity of some sort. Well, he couldn't take his eyes from the enchanted little creatures in the bowl. The two tentacles withdrew and then came forth again, and, as if they had found some invisible mark, remained fixed in either snail. That night, he searched his encyclopedias and a few general science books he happened to possess, but there was absolutely nothing on snails' breeding habits, though the oyster's dull reproductive cycle was described in detail. Perhaps it hadn't been a mating he had seen after all. His wife, Edna, told him either to eat the snails or get rid of them. And Mr. Noppert might have, if he hadn't come across a sentence in Darwin's Origin of Species on a page given to Gastropoda. The sentence was in French, a language Mr. Noppert did not know, but the word sensuality made him tense like a bloodhound that has suddenly found the scent. He was in the public library at that time and laboriously he translated the sentence with the aid of a French-English dictionary. It was a statement of less than a hundred words saying that snails manifested a sensuality in their mating that was not to be found elsewhere in the animal kingdom. And that was all. Well, obviously Darwin had decided not to translate it for the average reader, but to leave it in its original language for the scholarly few who really cared. <laughs> Mr. Noppert considered himself one of the scholarly few now, and his round, pink face beamed with self-esteem. 
So, more and more glass tanks and bowls were moved in. His colleagues in the brokerage office noticed a new zest for life in Peter Noppert. He became more daring in his moves, more oh, brilliant in his calculations, became, in fact, a little vicious in his schemes. But he brought money in for his company, and by unanimous vote, his basic salary was raised from forty to $60,000 per year. When anyone congratulated him on his achievements, Mr. Noppert gave all the credit to his snails and the beneficial relaxation he derived from watching them. He spent all his evenings with his snails in the room that was no longer a study, but a kind of aquarium. He loved to strew the tanks with fresh lettuce and pieces of boiled potato and beet, and then turn on the sprinkler system that he had installed in the tanks to simulate natural rainfall. Then... All the snails would liven up and begin eating, mating, or merely gliding through the shallow water with obvious pleasure. Oh, Mr. Noppert often let a small snail crawl onto his forefinger. He fancied his snails enjoyed this human contact, and he would feed it a little piece of lettuce by hand, and would observe the snail from all sides, finding as much aesthetic satisfaction as another man might, from contemplating a Japanese print. During the month of June, he was so busy, he often worked late into the evening at his office. Reports were piling in at the end of the fiscal year, and by this time next year, he thought, he should be three or four times as well off as now. He saw his bank account multiplying as easily and rapidly as his snails. He told his wife this. <laughs> yes, she was overjoyed. She even forgave him the ruination of the study and the stale, fishy smell that was spreading throughout the hole upstairs. Still, I do wish you'd take a look just to see if anything's happening, Peter. She said to him rather anxiously one morning. But a tank might have overturned or something, and, oh, I wouldn't want the rug to be spoiled. We, oh, you haven't been in the study for nearly a week, have you? Mr. Noppert hadn't been in for nearly two weeks. He didn't tell his wife that the rug was pretty much gone already. <laughs> I'll go up tonight he said. But it was three more days before he found time. He went in one evening just before bedtime and was surprised to find the floor quite covered with snails. In fact, three or four layers of snails. He had difficulty closing the door without mashing any. The dense cluster of snails in the corners made the room look positively round, as if he stood inside some huge conglomerate stone. Oh, Mr. Noppert cracked his knuckles and gazed around him in astonishment. They had not only covered every surface, but thousands of snails hung down into the room from the chandelier in a grotesque clump. 
He took an umbrella from the corner, brushed some of the snails off it, and cleared a piece on his desk to stand. The umbrella point tore the wallpaper, and then the weight of the snails pulled down a long strip that hung almost to the floor. Mr. Noppet felt suddenly frustrated and angry. Oh, the sprinklers would make them move. He pulled the lever. The sprinklers came on in all the tanks, and the seething activity of the entire room increased at once. This was a mistake. The softened paper began to tear, and he dodged one slowly falling mass, only to be hit by a swinging festoon of snails, really hit quite a stunning blow on the side of the head. He went down on one knee, dazed. He should open a window, he thought, or the air was stifling and there were snails crawling over his shoes and up his trouser legs. He shook his feet irritably. He was just going to the door, intending to call for one of the servants to help him. When the chandelier fell on him, Mr. Noppet sat down heavily on the door. He saw now that he couldn't possibly get a window open because the snails were fastened thick and deep over the windowsills. Well, for a moment, he, he felt he couldn't get up, felt as if he were suffocating. Edna, he called, and was amazed at the muffled, ineffectual sound of his voice. Well, the room might have been soundproof. He crawled to the door, Heedless of the sea of snails he crushed under his hands and knees. He could not get the door open. There were so many snails on it, crossing and recrossing the crack on the door on all sides. They actually resisted his strength. Edna! The snail crawled into his mouth. He spat it out in disgust. Mr. Noppet tried to brush the snails off his arms, but for every hundred he dislodged, four hundred seemed to slide upon him and fasten to him again, as if they deliberately sought him out as the only comparatively snail-free surface in the room. There were snails crawling over his eyes. Help! He swallowed a snail. <gasps> Choking, he widened his mouth for air and felt a snail crawl over his lips and onto his tongue. He could feel them gliding over his legs like a glutinous river, pinning his legs to the floor. <gasps> Mr. Noppet's breath came in feeble gasps. His vision grew black. A horrible undulating black. He could not breathe at all because he could not reach his nostrils, could not move his hands. Then, through the slit of one eye, he saw directly in front of him, only inches away, what had been the rubber plant that stood in its pot near the door. A pair of snails were quietly making love in it. 
and right beside them, tiny snails, as pure as dewdrops, were emerging from a pit like an infinite army into their widening world. night, I would lie in bed and watch the show. How bees squeezed through the cracks of my bedroom wall and flew circles around the room, making that propeller sound. A high-pitched... that hummed along my skin. I watched their wings shining like bits of chrome in the dark and felt the longing build in my chest. The way those bees flew, not even looking for a flower, just flying for the feel of the wind, split my heart down its seam. During the day, I heard them tunneling through the walls of my bedroom, sounding like a radio tuned to static in the next room, and I imagined them in there turning the walls into honeycombs, with honey seeping out for me to taste. On our first Friday evening there, after prayers were finished and orange and pink swirls still hung in the sky from sunset, I went with August to the bee yard. I hadn't been out to the hives before, so to start off, she gave me a lesson in what she called bee yard etiquette. She reminded me that the world was really one big bee yard, and the same rules worked fine in both places. Don't be afraid, as no life-loving bee wants to sting you. Still, don't be an idiot. Wear long sleeves and long pants. Don't swat. Don't even think about swatting. If you feel angry, whistle. Anger agitates while whistling melts a bee's temper. Act like you know what you're doing, even if you don't. Above all, send the bees love. Every little thing wants to be loved. August had been stung so many times she had immunity. They barely hurt her. In fact, she said, stings helped her arthritis. But since I didn't have arthritis, I should cover up. She made me put on one of her long-sleeved white shirts, then placed one of the white helmets on my head and adjusted the netting. If this was a man's world, a veil took the rough beard right off it. Everything appeared softer, nicer. When I walked behind August in my bee veil, I felt like a moon floating behind a night cloud. She kept 48 hives strewn through the woods around the pink house, and another 280 were parceled out on various farms in river yards and upland swamps. The farmers loved her bees, thanks to all the pollinating they did, how they made the watermelons redder and the cucumbers bigger. 
They would have welcomed her bees for free, but August paid every one of them with five gallons of honey. She was constantly checking on her hives, driving her old flatbed truck from one end of the county to the other. The honey wagon was what she called it. Bee patrol was what she did in it. I watched her load the red wagon, the one I'd seen in the backyard, with brood frames, those little slats that slip down into the hives for the bees to deposit honey on. We have to make sure the queen has plenty of room to lay her eggs, or else we'll get a swarm, she said. What does that mean, a swarm? Well, if you have a queen and a group of independent-minded bees that split off from the rest of the hive and look for another place to live, then you've got a swarm. They usually cluster on a limb somewhere. It was clear she didn't like swarms. So, she said, getting down to business, what we have to do is take out the frames filmed with honey and put in the empty ones. August struck a match and lit the grass in the smoker. I watched her face flare with light and then recede into the dimness. She waved the bucket, sending smoke into the hive. The smoke, she said, worked better than a sedative. Still, when August removed the lids, the bees poured out in thick black ropes, breaking into strands, a flurry of tiny wings moving around our faces. The air rained bees, and I sent them love, just like August said. She pulled out a brood frame, a canvas of whirling blacks and greys with rubbings of silver. There she is, Lily, see her, said August. That's the queen, the large one. I made a curtsy like people do for the Queen of England, which made August laugh. I wanted to make her love me so she would keep me forever. If I could make her love me, maybe she would forget about Beatrix the nun going home and let me stay. When we walked back to the house, darkness had settled in and fireflies sparkled around our shoulders. I could see Rosaline and May through the kitchen window finishing the dishes. August and I sat in collapsible lawn chairs beside a crepe myrtle that kept dropping blossoms all over the ground. Cello music swelled out from the house, rising higher and higher until it lifted off the earth, sailing toward Venus. I could see how such music drew the ghosts out of dying people, giving them a ride to the next life. Snake. A snake came to my water trough on a hot, hot day, and I in pyjamas for the heat to drink there. In the deep, strange, scented shade of the great dark carob tree, I came down the steps with my pitcher and must wait must stand and wait, for there he was at the trough before me. He reached down from a fissure in the earth wall in the gloom and trailed his yellow-brown slackness soft-bellied over the edge of the stone trough 
and rested his throat upon the stone bottom. And where the water had dripped from the tap in a small clearness, he sipped with his straight mouth, softly drank through his straight gums into his slack, long body, silently. Someone was before me at my water trough, and I, like a second comer, waiting. He lifted his head from his drinking, as cattle do, and looked at me vaguely, as drinking cattle do, and flickered his two-forked tongue from his lips, amused a moment, and stooped and drank a little more, being earth-brown, earth-golden, from the burning bowels of the earth on the day of Sicilian July with Etna smoking. And the voice of my education said to me, he must be killed. For in Sicily, the black, black snakes are innocent and the gold are venomous. And voices in me said, if you're a man you would take a stick and break him now and finish him off. But must I confess how I liked him? How glad I was that he had come like a guest in quiet to drink at my water trough and depart peaceful, pacified and thankless into the burning bowels of this earth. Was it cowardice that I dared not kill him? Was it perversity that I longed to talk to him? Was it humility to feel so honoured? I felt so honoured. And yet those voices, if you were not afraid, you would kill him. And truly, I was afraid. I was most afraid. But even so, honoured still more that he should seek my hospitality from out the dark door of the secret earth. He drank enough and lifted his head dreamily, as one who has drunken and flickered his tongue like a forked knight on the air so black, seeming to lick his lips and looked around like a god unseeing into the air and slowly turned his head and slowly, very slowly, as if thrice a dream, proceeded to draw his slow length curving round and climb again the broken bank of my wall face. And as he put his head into that dreadful hole. And as he slowly drew up, snake-easing his shoulders and entered further, a sort of horror, a sort of protest at his withdrawing into that horrid black hole, deliberately going into the blackness and slowly drawing himself after, overcame me now his head was turned. I looked around, I put down my pitcher, I picked up a clumsy log and I threw it at the water trough with a clatter. I think it did not hit him. But suddenly, that part of him that was left behind convulsed in undignified haste, writhed like lightning and was gone into the black hole, the earth-lipped fissure in the wall front at which, in the intense still noon, I stared with fascination. And immediately, I regretted it. I thought, how paltry, how vulgar, what a mean act. I despised myself and the voices of my accursed human education, and I thought of the albatross, and I wished he would come back, my snake. For he seemed to me 
again like a king, like a king in exile, uncrowned in the underworld, now due to be crowned again. And so I missed my chance with one of the lords of life, and I have something to expiate, a pettiness. Does Canarellen the main wetter? I do in Reda Gasan or Huehus Nossi registry, but all let thee. Then up a martyr mouth goes to Java Denwe, a gwell toss of the noon tire and yawn. Middle Bomethian Dienwin are with up there, the men yawn me, funny star. Mot space in a fainest are doing cadur fainest, Maurice or Lana, studying metry. Drwy beidio deidrw lawer, just gwen i'n hafaid braf, fel sy'n i wedi ngyn i eisiau allan, a gelen yn tynnu'n hi mewn i allan ohono i. Clomp, 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 llaw chwith osian ar y si, ar G, trwy mac fucking ffadr eis jig yn bygoedd y myddari, er ei fod yn y tu a'n un y tu allan, a fe wneud fod i glywed lleisiau'r ein. Ond mae'r rhythm, mae'n ddim yn berfeth, ond yn barhaol, clomp. Clomp eil a'r chwyth yn dyrnu unrhyw soniau'r ystrwydd fion ymhiannwy ar iod allan ohono fe, a mystig sy'n lawdd e fe. G, ddim meth, dim F y twatsyn bach, tôn deff. Ail adrodd mystig sfathag ardaith waith, waith dim na fysyn gynnyn nhw'n gwantan ymw. Dos yn ôl i dansydd the Indians o leia dos na mots dos ti'n ei dynodau'n rong yn ona. Sy gennyr nerth, Fyddai ni'n codi, ac yn estyn yr elen un o'r tair am un fewn yn ddistaw, tra mae un pwndo'r stwffin o'r offerin, a dwi'n ffynnu tu ôl iddo fe, a slamor ceiad, lawr o'r i bysedd bach precocious e, nes fod yr esgyr ym hob un yn mynd crac. Mwy soniaris, na dim y fedd i chwarae'r hyod, a neithio byth, 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 Mae fe ni'n nhw dywedd y dwe. Nhw sy'n goffa byd yr enw. Be math i ti alw mallt yn mallt? Sgynnyn nhw ddim syniad bys i'n mynd yn ymhenni. A mae yna dymlaid braf ymhenni. Mae nhw'n gweld rhyw dwtsh o ddyd o'r eithrwydd. Felly'n seliedig ar dyma bach o'r blues. Sy'n nhw'n gweld ti'n mewn ymhenni. Byddech rhyn yn nhw ar fain mor ddi yw e. Pa mor gyfan gwbl ddi. A chymaint o waith ydw e'n ei synwyr o'r geiriau gyd sydd fyddai sy'n nhw'n dwi'n mewn yn rhydd o'i brofegar ddim mewn drwng listiau yn dadreiddio. A mynd ni'n mod i'n gosod trefn yn nhw ti'n mewn sy'n nhw yn gwbl. Bynnwch chi alw hi te? Mae gwawr wedi llithro'r cwestiwn mawr i mewn heb i catrin a fi welen dod a mae wedi fyllorioi. Unwaith eto mae'r geiriau heb fod yn sownd wrth i gilydd, ond dwi'n gwybod beth i hystyr nhw trwma, a sa hi'n ynghweld i'n ysgwyd i mewn yn crynu fyth o rhywbeth i mewn gallt i mewn, fyddai i ddim wedi gofyn, fyddai i ddim wedi bod mor greilon y gofyn. Mi driau yng ngorau i ail bastio ngwyna bi'n mlan, ond mae'r ffracsiwn o eiliad yn ddigon i ddi fod wedi gweld effaith y cwestiwn yn syth. Dwi heb foddran ateb pan ddo'r cwestiwn dros y ffôn a'r yr adegau pan 
mae wedi mynnu mod i'n siarra gyda nhw yn llun ei desgys, mae'n prynu amser gohirio am hendantrwydd fel dwfe ymdanau. A heddi, cyn hyn, mae yna dar o bys bach troi di fwr cydd yr hyn sy'n mewn, mewn mlaen sy'n mewn i mi'n nad dwi'n rhannu wrth, wrth i'n ofyn, wel, sgynnwch chi ddim ein weto? Wrth ei chymryd am gwtsh bach, oh, oh, lovely, oh, oh, fydd rhaid i ddi gael enw? Tynnu cwrs, chi'n rhy bysodus, i roi enw i ddi dynod. Mae Osian yn bangor piano wrth fethu ar ôl trio ffygyn ganwaith cael y darn, darn gradd dai sy'r i anodd i ddefen gywir, bangiad i, o, wyll gyrraf i bangion ar ffygyn jig na. Os gynnau chi ddim un syniad o gwbl? Hola, Catrin. Ei hen o hi, ydy'r peth diwethan fy meddwl i, a fe, cadw i fe nhw un dydd y llall, fe, gymaint â fi, a fe nhw'n dreino fe egni, gyda'n rhio, fe'n hwyno, fe ingo, ei henw i hi wir, mae hadw hi'n fyw yn gymaint ag y llwyddau neud am yr syniad, mod i'n ei chadw hi, a fi fe hi'n yn fyw, yn rhoi'r tyma bach leia o falchter fi, am nano eiliad, yr orches. Ei chadw hi, a fe nhw'n fyw, Os ydw'n fyw, rhyw ffordd fyw yn fymhenni yn stwmp felyn, ond dwi yma, mae hi yma, yr Elen. Ieu, arre, gyda chi nhw felly, o, nyn neis, o, liko fe, bendigedig, Elen, o, neis, lovely. Mynegiant, 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 a fyn yn rhyong orau weni hi'n odio, gwedi sgwyddau, mynd i thy tro, a... Normal, normal. Dwi eisiau cysgu, dwi eisiau marw, dwi eisiau chau hi mewn beic y ffoel a roi hi yn y ffwrn. Wel, byddai werth iddi wedyn, achos byddai ddi tymau bach blasus o gyd. Catrin, Sian, gwawr, dewch wir, mae hi'n lyfli. O, mae hi'n lyfli, di'n neud hi'n lyfli. Dewch, Blant, dewch. I weud helo wrth Elen. Yn y pwll tywod andrad, mae'r ei lleian sdwrio ar rai mwyan. Clywed o'i pen pellar pridd a hediant fel gwylanod traeth i'n hyfeiriad. A'i pridd a'i tywod. Eisiau sosio'r elen. Fe ddim yn gwbl, beth fydd wedi hitio fe na hi. Doedd elen ddim ar y list pam oedd hi, pam o'n ni, yn llawn babi a bwriadau. Pan oedd hi, pam o'n ni, y fam o'r yn y byd ac yn mynd i neu popeth yn berffaith fel yr iod ac yn gwbl mwyn a neb. Dwi'n gwbl dim. Mond mod i... Beth i fi? Wedi mynd. Am beth. Amen. Bye, child. He was discovered in the hen house where she had confined him. He was incapable of saying anything. When the lamp glowed, a yoke of light in their back window, the child in the outhouse put his eye to a chink. Little henhouse boy, sharp-faced as new moons, remembered your photo still, glimpsed like a rodent on the floor of my mind. 
little moon man, kenneled and faithful at the foot of the yard, your frail shape, luminous, weightless, is stirring the dust. The cobwebs, old droppings under the roosts and dry smells from scraps she put through your trap door morning and evening. After those footsteps, silence, vigils, solitudes, fasts, unchristened tears, a puzzled love of the light, but now you speak at last with a remote mime of something beyond patience, your gaping wordless proof of lunar distances travelled beyond love. At each stage of his imprisonment, he had known, or seemed to know, whereabouts in the windowless building he was. Possibly there were slight differences in the air pressure. The cells where the guards had beaten him were below ground level. The room where he had been interrogated by O'Brien was high up near the roof. This place was many metres underground, as deep down as it was possible to go. It was bigger than most of the cells he had been in, but he hardly noticed his surroundings. All he noticed was that there was two small tables straight in front of him, each covered with green bays. One was only a metre or two from him. The other was further away, near the door. He was strapped upright in a chair, so tightly that he could move nothing, not even his head. A sort of pad gripped his head from behind, forcing him to look straight in front of him. For a moment, he was alone. Then the door opened, and O'Brien came in. You asked me once, said O'Brien, what was in room 101? I told you that you knew the answer already. Everyone knows it. The thing that is in room 101 is the worst thing in the world. The door opened again. A guard came in, carrying something made of wire, a box or basket of some kind. He set it down on the further table. Because of the position in which O'Brien was standing, Winston could not see what the thing was. The worst thing in the world, said O'Brien, varies from individual to individual. It may be burial alive, or death by fire, or by drowning, or by impalement, or fifty other deaths. There are cases where it is some quite trivial thing, not even fatal. He had moved a little to one side so that Winston had a better view of the thing on the table. It was an oblong wire cage with a handle on top for carrying it, carrying it by. Fixed to the front of it was something that looked like a fencing mask with the concave side outwards. Although it was three or four metres away from him, he could see that the cage was divided lengthways into two compartments and that there were some kind of creature in each. They were rats. In your case, said O'Brien, the worst thing in the world happens to be rats. A sort of premonitory tremor, a fear of he was not certain what, had passed through Winston as soon as he had caught his first glimpse of the cage. But at this moment, the meaning of the mask-like attachment in front of it 
suddenly sank into him. His bowels seemed to turn to water. You can't do that, he cried out in a high cracked voice. You couldn't, you couldn't, it's impossible. Do you remember, said O'Brien, the moment of panic that used to occur in your dreams? There was a wall of blackness in front of you and a roaring sound in your ears. There was something terrible on the other side of the wall. You knew that you knew what it was, but you dared not drag it into the open. It was the rats on the other side of the wall. O'Brien, said Winston, making an effort to control his voice. You know this is not necessary. What is it you want me to do? O'Brien made no direct answer. When he spoke, it was in the schoolmaster's manner that he sometimes affected. He looked thoughtfully into the, into the distance, although he were addressing an audience somewhere behind Winston's back. By itself, he said, pain is not always enough. There are occasions when a human being will stand out against pain, even to the point of death. But for everyone, there is something unendurable, something that cannot be contemplated. Courage and cowardice are not involved. If you are falling from a height, it is not cowardly to clutch at a rope. If you have come up from deep water, it is not cowardly to fill your lungs with air. It is merely an instinct which cannot be disobeyed. It is the same with the rats. For you, they are unendurable. They are a form of pressure that you cannot withstand, even if you wish to. You will do what is required of you. But what is it? What is it? How can I do it if I don't know what it is? O'Brien picked up the cage and brought it across to the nearer table. He set it down carefully on the base cloth. Winston could hear the blood singing in his ears. He had the feeling of sitting in utter loneliness. He was in the middle of a great empty plain, a flat desert drenched with sunlight, across which all sounds came to him out of immense distances. Yet the cage with the rats was not two meters from him. They were enormous rats. They were at the age when a rat's muzzle grows blunt and fierce and his fur brown instead of gray. The rat, said O'Brien, although a rodent is carnivorous. You are aware of that. You will have heard of the things that happen in the poor quarters of this town. In some streets, a woman dare not leave her baby alone in the house, even for five minutes. The rats are certain to attack it. Within quite a small time, they will strip it to the bones. They also attack sick or dying people. They show astonishing intelligence in knowing when a human being is helpless. There was an outburst of squeals from the cage... It seemed to reach Winston from far away. The rats were fighting. They were trying to get at each other through the partition. He also heard a deep groan of despair. That, too, uh, seemed to come from outside of himself. O'Brien picked up the cage and, as he did so, pressed something in it. There was a sharp click. Winston made a frantic effort to tear himself loose from the chair. It was hopeless. Every part of him, even his head, was held immovably. O'Brien moved the cage nearer. It was less than a meter from Winston's face. 
I have pressed the first lever, said O'Brien. You understand the construction of this cage. The mask will fit over your head, leaving no exit. When I press this other lever, the door of the cage will slide up. These starving brutes will shoot out of it like bullets. Have you ever seen a rat leap through the air? They will leap onto your face and bore straight into it. Sometimes they attack the eyes first. Sometimes they burrow through the cheeks and devour the tongue. The cage was nearer. It was closing in. Winston heard a succession of shrill cries which appeared to be occurring in the air above his head. But he fought furiously against his panic. To think, to think even with a split second, to think was the only hope. Suddenly, the foul, musty odour of the brute struck his nostrils. There was a violent convulsion of nausea inside him, and he almost lost consciousness. Everything had gone black. For an instant, he was insane, a screaming animal. Yet, he came out of the blackness, clutching an idea. There was one and only one way to save himself. He must interpose another human being, the body of another human being, between himself and the rats. The rats knew what was coming now. One of them was leaping up and down. The other, an old scaly grandfather of the sewers, stood up, his pink hands against the bars, and fiercely sniffed the air. Winston could see the whiskers and the yellow teeth. Again, the black panic took hold of him. He was blind. Helpless, mindless. It was a common punishment in Imperial China, said O'Brien, as didactically as ever. The mask was closing on his face. The wire brushed his cheek. And then, no, it was not relief, only hope, a tiny fragment of hope. Too late, perhaps too late, but he had suddenly understood in the whole world there was just... One person to whom he could transfer his punishment. One body that he could thrust between himself and the rats. And he was shouting frantically over and over. Do it to Julia. Do it to Julia. Not me. Julia. I don't care what you do to her. Tear her face off. Strip her to the bones. Not me. Julia. Not me. He was falling backwards into enormous depths away from the rats. He was still strapped in the chair, but he had fallen through the floor, through the walls of the building, through the earth, through the oceans, through the atmosphere, into outer space, into the gulfs between the stars, always away, away, away from the rats. He was light years distant, but O'Brien was still standing at his side. There was still the cold touch of wire against his cheek. But through the darkness that enveloped him, he heard another metallic click. And knew that the cage door had clicked shut and not open. In early spring, a friend went for a walk in the woods and glancing down at the path, saw a snail. Picking it up, she held it gingerly in the palm of her hand and carried it back towards the studio where I was convalescing. 
She noticed some field violets on the edge of the lawn. Finding a trowel, she dug a few up, then planted them in a terracotta pot and placed the snail beneath their leaves. She brought the pot into the studio and put it by my bedside. I found a snail in the woods. I brought it back and it's right here beneath the violets. Well, you did. And why did you bring it in? I don't know. I thought you might enjoy it. Is it alive? She picked up the brown acorn-sized shell and looked at it. I think it is. Why, I wondered, would I enjoy a snail? What on earth would I do with it? I couldn't get out of bed to return it to the woods. It was not of much interest, and if it was alive, the responsibility, especially for a snail, something so uncalled for, was overwhelming. My friend hugged me, said goodbye, and drove off. At the age of 34, on a brief trip to Europe, I was felled by a mysterious viral or bacterial pathogen, resulting in severe neurological symptoms. I had thought I was indestructible, but I wasn't. If anything did go wrong, I figured modern medicine would fix me, but it didn't. Medical specialists at several major clinics couldn't diagnose the infectious culprit. I was in and out of the hospital for six months and the complications were life-threatening. An experimental drug that became available stabilized my condition, though it would be several grueling years to a partial recovery and a return to work. My doctor said the illness was behind me and I wanted to believe them. I was ecstatic to have... Most of my life back. But out of the blue came a series of insidious relapses and once again I was bedridden. Further more sophisticated testing showed that the mitochondria in my cells no longer functioned correctly and there was damage to my autonomic nervous system. All functions that were not consciously directed, including heart rate, blood pressure and digestion, had gone haywire. The drug that had previously helped me cause dangerous side effects, it would soon be removed from the market. When the body is rendered useless, the mind still runs like a bloodhound along well-worn trails of neurons, tracking the echoing questions, the confused family of whys, what and whens, and their impossibly distant kin. How? The search is exhaustive. The answers elusive. Sometimes my mind went blank and listless. At other times it was flooded with storms of thought, unspeakable sadness and intolerable loss. Given the ease with which health infuses life with meaning and purpose, it is shocking how swiftly illness steals away those certainties. It was all I could do to get through each moment, and each moment felt like an endless hour, yet days slipped silently past. Time unused and only endured still vanishes, as if time itself is starving, and each day is swallowed whole, leaving no crumbs, no memory, no trace at all. I had been moved to a studio apartment where I received the care I needed. My own farmhouse, was some 50 miles away, was closed up. I did not know if or when I'd ever make it home again. 
For now, my only way back was to close my eyes and remember. I could see the early spring there, the purple field violets like those at my bedside, running rampant through the yard, and the fragrant small pink violets that I had planted in the little woodland garden to the north of my house. They too would be in bloom. Though not usually hardy this far north, somehow they survived, and in my mind I could smell their sweetness. Before my illness, my dog Brandy and I had often wandered the acres of forest that stretched beyond the house to a hidden mountain-fed brook. The brook's song of weather and season followed us as we crisscrossed its channel over partially submerged boulders. On the trail home in the boggiest of spots, perched on tiny islands of root and moss, I found diminutive wild white violets, their throats faintly striped with purple. These field violets in the pot at my bedside were fresh and full of life, unlike the usual cut flowers bought by other friends. Those lasted just a few days, leaving murky, smelly vase water. In my twenties, I had earned my living as a gardener, so I was glad to have this bit of garden right by my side. I could even water the violets with my drinking glass. But what about this snail? What would I do with it? As tiny as it was, it had been going about its day when it was picked up. What right did my friend and I have to disrupt its life? Though I couldn't imagine what kind of life a snail might lead. I didn't remember ever having noticed any snails on my countless hikes in the woods. Perhaps, I thought, looking at the nondescript brown creature, it was precisely because they were so inconspicuous. For the rest of the day, the snail stayed inside its shell, and I was too worn out from my friend's visit to give it another thought. And the days are not full enough. And the days are not full enough. And the nights are not full enough. And life slips by like a field mouse, not shaking the grass. This was the fifth in our series of chapter readings podcasts. Please subscribe to our channel.